I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to Season 2 of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me true, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue, tell me a story and I I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to season two, episode 14 of More to the Story, a show that is all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gumtree, which is dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the writers and artists we publish. Digital subscriptions are $2 a month and print subscriptions are $7 a month. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Liz Stevens, one of Under the Gumtree's previous contributors. Liz is currently growing the Mojave Desert Arts Project, a residency and workshop space outside Joshua Tree, California. Recent work can be found in the anthologies Brief Encounters, a collection of contemporary nonfiction, and Dirt, a love story. Other work can be found in Fourth Genre and Terrain.org, among others. She has served as managing editor of Brevity and teaches nonfiction with the UCLA Extension Writers Program and through private workshops and retreats. Liz's essay, Because Faint Glitter Came Off Everything, appears in the April 2017 issue of Under the Gumtree. Before we get to the interview, here is Liz reading from her essay titled Bet Noir. You've got a tick in your eye. My cousin, five years older than me, infinitely cooler than me, he cut off jean shorts and vinegary sun-in blonde hair, says this with only slight alarm as she leans down to peer at me under a rusty swing set somewhere at the end of an Oklahoma dirt road that no longer exists. See, she says to her sister, just as wonderful, leggy and ethereal in her blue eyeliner and shiny toenails, a red plastic cup of sweet tea in her hand held as languidly as that cousin does everything. I have never been languid a day in my sweaty eight-year-old life. Languid is not a word that has been used to describe me. I march down the dirt lane to sit next to the mid-century pool at my aunt's Los Long Ranch house, the only smudge of glamour in a neighborhood of open fields, unruly honeysuckle, and fighting rooster coops. My aunt went to art school in Canvas. She's always going to be different in just the right way. My back is close enough to her Lincoln Continental to feel the heat off the metal as I face the pool and everybody stares at the tick in my eye. It's a glorious, humid, dusty, hay-scented, exotic Oklahoma summer day. Nothing my parents ever offered once they'd moved north to a wealthy suburban Wisconsin town held anything like the heady intimacy of being part of that community of that county in Oklahoma. Ticks, heat, and roosters were way better to my mind than the sailboats and tall fences we moved to. Everything in the new place is about otherness and getting away from. There's a difference between everybody knowing your business and simple accountability. 
Accountability gets you a serious conversation in the kitchen somewhere, but the other only gets you a side eye and a snicker at the arcade. I found out both the long way. I've been searching to find that net again, that invasive and advice-stolen citizen body my whole life. I've tried a lot of neighborhoods. Mostly my own adult neighborhoods feel like they're chasing me. Old identities I can't squelch, more unburnable than journals. Each holds proof of how well or badly I've behaved. Neighborhoods hold such promise, and in my experience at least, later such crushing weight. The weight of the memories, hopes played out, time squandered, inadequacies revealed, ignored, or faced. Any crucible that held all these is doomed to provoke such intensity in me I might mistake it for hate, but that would be a mistake. Because now my neighborhood is in undeniable and inconvenient ways, my heart, my bet noir, the thing I wish I didn't love. To describe it is to see my id. I have a too small cabin in the desert on land no one wants, and thus it was very cheap. When I first drove up to the cabin, it was with something I could call unsurprise that I realized I couldn't even get off the dirt road to park. The house had been plowed in, years of grading the dirt road, throwing a berm of red sandy desert into a trench in front of the ignored place. No matter. I knew how to play hard to get. The low gray cinder block cabin crouched there in the blazing sun, even made of brick, the house had a kind of transparency, turned in on itself, but with windows lined up front and back, and the desert the view throughout. I stood there till dark and listened to the dogs and coyotes howl in the twilight, and as the heat bowed out and the uninhabitable desert reasserted itself. The next day I drove back. At the newest house in the area, 20 acres from the cabin, a 30-something man brings water to his goats in a pen. Nearby, the oldest man I've ever seen picks something nearly imaginary, it is so small, off of the dirt of his yard, next to the dirt that is the road. An alarmingly fit 70-year-old woman hoofs it down the road with a Walkman on. A heavyset girl, about 20, wrings out a towel, heavy with water, into a bucket in her driveway, 15 acres from the cabin in the other direction. Have I mentioned none of these cabins have water or power? How inconvenient they are? How like me in spatial space and utility and charm. Every one of the people waves except the girl. and She's my closest neighbor, but I figure I'll be back for her later. I'll get her. Every one of the people I saw is a perfect specimen of desert types, including me. City transient, overeducated, wound up on desert dream. And so the fabric of the neighborhood feels complete. I wonder what I'll learn about them one driveway snippet at a time over years. I wonder what they'll learn about me by knocking on my door when I don't want them or catching me on a low resistance day. I wonder what I'll learn about myself, listening to that wind so meaningless it's existential, staring at the long view, interrupted only and pointedly by the houses of other people who also came here to be alone, when none of us are. And in fact, what we're honing is really only the power to pretend that we could ever be. And then we go and we will tell each other about it. Thank you, Liz, and welcome to more to the story. Thank you. It's nice for you to have me. Thank you. Nice of you to have me. So I would like to start with your writing background and in particular your interest in creative nonfiction, how you came to writing the genre. Thank you. Um, I I have a, a long background. I suppose I was uh, writing bad fiction from the time I was very little and um 
then slowly came back to grad school. I left as an undergrad, kind of a don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out kind of undergrad. <laughs> and um, uh, slowly circled back to graduate school uh, because I was still so just immersed in knowledge and uh, kind of voracious about eating it up. So uh, I was in grad school and saw a flyer on the wall of the hallway that said, um, oh, uh, win $200 by, you know, our competition in personal essay. And I thought, well, personal essay, what exactly is that? Um, I might be already doing that. So I looked it up and that really was the back end backdoor way of me kind of discovering what essay really was. I didn't come into it in a kind of an academic, um, overthought way. But through uh, the writing I had already been doing in the first person. And then, of course, my brain exploded when I looked up what it really meant. And um, I won the competition. I got my $200 and uh, won the competition and um, never looked back. Somehow I had found my voice in uh, not what was, um, of course, it's not journal writing or diary writing, but it is the emotions you'd have there, but making those for an audience, for a reading audience. And that kind of crafting of it is what appealed to me, um, being able to communicate um, by thinking it through like that, but communicate what you really wanted to say. And so I, I came at it the long way there. So do you write fiction at all anymore? Well, now I have found that I can... Uh, circle back to fiction. And actually, some of my current projects are um, in screenwriting and trying a pilot out and things like this, because what happened in uh, uh, creative nonfiction was, of course, I dialed in my, I had always loved dialogue and characterization. And when I was able to borrow the scaffolding of real events and real time and see how to pull kind of plot and story out of that, now I have that construction. Now I've got that in my, you know, muscle memory and am much uh, better at fiction. And in fact, try that voice recognizing how much I can draw from real life. You know, that characterization and dialogue, all of those beats and, um, intimacies come from real life. And, um, and, and I've backed my way now in it's come full circle back into some, some fiction and actually been reading it lately, which is a revelation. People should read this fiction stuff. Uh, so going back into that now, uh, and, and really enjoying it, but uh, it was certainly a long path that borrows from real life at all times. So yeah, yeah. I find that that's some a very common theme among the creative nonfiction writers who I okay. speak with. Is that right? I'm not alone in that. Okay. No, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. It's like I needed the um, filter. I needed the attention that I pay to real life. It's very much a kind of standard attention feeling. Um, I needed that um, construction to look at the kind of artfulness of, of, of fiction rather than feeling flighty about it. And that it was, which is funny. I mean, I like science fiction, but something in me wants it to answer problems. And so right. I needed that applicability, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That makes complete sense to me. I'm a, I'm personally have this sort of like, um, in my mind, this line between 
um, real realism, like realistic fiction and science yes. fiction or fantasy. And if if the genre kind of stays too close to that line, I'm like, nope, don't buy it. It's got to be one or the other. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. And I really feel like I'm, you know, I, I think had this kind of I'm on to you kind of feeling when I read fiction and it's trying um, especially hard, maybe in genre fiction, say this to, to um, lasso me in with, uh, you know, the real human relationship. And I just could see the machinations and now it's a little harder to engage. So I really need to be swept away beyond right. seeing how it's constructed. That's right. right. That's right. So tell me a little bit about the piece that you read. What was the impetus for it? How did it come together for you? Well, happily, uh, you know, I, I teach a lot, um, right now in kind of private workshops and with some places. So, and I use a lot of prompts and I see what that sparks in people. And in my last couple of years, I've been so busy with that, <clears throat> that some of my own writing has come when people come to me with prompts, mm. uh, because I'm not starting whole cloth. I have my own interests, but as we all know, it takes a minute to get tra minute or month to get traction on that when you are, are addressing, um, a blank, um, out, the outline in your mind of what you want to approach and seeing how unwieldy it is. So this was written to a prompt from a friend that was writing, um, pulling together an anthology on neighborhoods. And she is at great work about that and has some great contributors. And mine is <clears throat> happily in that stack now. So it was really given the prompt around a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of, I think, political climate around neighborhoods and valuing that, though she was not prescriptive about um, me indicating any value. She just said neighborhoods was the prompt and that was it. So I ran with that. And I'm in transition. For me, I mean, any writer will translate that to their greatest preoccupations, you know, as we do. And mine right now is something about um, uh, being, you know, a real grown up when I thought things would be settled and really still finding myself in transition, having chosen uh, to be kind of part of the artistic class, you know, and continue in that vein and not bow out and take a job in advertising or, you know, something a little more secure has left me shifting neighborhoods a lot more than I ever thought I would. And a lot of the longer version of that piece nods to that and the, you know, real, um, clench that I feel in my entire self when I see kind of a wide hauled, shady, rambling house, you know, on a settled block. And I think, I think that's what I thought that I would do. And there's this parallel universe where I still uh, am missing that. Um, and so this was uh, wrapped around kind of deciphering that for myself because mm -hmm. I didn't get here by accident. Of course, it's, sure. it's deliberate. So sure, but sure. Days it feels accidental. So it's looking at that path. Sure. Um, you have a line in there about how you prefer the ticks, the heat, and the roosters of Oklahoma to the sailboats and tall fences um, in the new neighborhood of Wisconsin when you moved. Um, and those were about otherness and getting away from. So um, it makes me think about how places are created and whether people create the place based on who they are or whether the place sort of shapes and forms the people. And maybe it's a little bit of both, but I'm curious to know if that was something that occurred to you while you were writing and, and maybe just what your thoughts are about that concept. 
Boy, that's a great question. And I very nearly wrote a dissertation uh, entirely on that. So it, it's hard to <laughs> a question that it's hard to um, be be brief on that. Sure. Um, but, you know, I. I think that we are, even when we're economically challenged, able to have a certain geographic uh, mobility uh, now and in the United States, I think that we take advantage of that greatly. So, uh, I, I, I would have said 20 years ago that the, uh, people make the place, but I have seen so often now how regularly place makes, uh, the people too. I mean, the desert is a great example in that you cannot, uh, you, you, People don't stay there um, unless they uh, can kind of want to hack it. They want it to be difficult a little bit. Um, and I mean that at, at every level of economy, there are places to go nearby and stay relatively near family, even if you don't have kind of artistic aspirations. And then other people that seek that out, that um, the difficulty surely of living there in order to feel a certain emotional freedom and, and literal space, I think, being there. So... But then once you get there, uh, it uh, begins to shape who you are as a person. I mean, I've certainly stayed out long enough to have gone in. Even, you know, when I go into Joshua Tree, it feels full and a little overwhelming. And um, I suddenly recognize that I may be kind of grimy and, you know, dusty and uh, not inside material. And, um, and so I, I like that dissonance, of course, so I seek that out. But, um, and in that case, the place makes me, you know, it may make me quiet and concentrated and prioritized kind of um, automatically uh, in a way that is recursive, you know, back mm -hmm. and forth. Um, I have more patience for uh, sailboat towns now, but I see that in kind of a um, uh, ethnographic study. I'm not sure I'll, I'll ever be uh, drawn to staying there, but um, I've seen more examples of a way to live like that that I like as well now. You know, I went to Carmel and saw <laughs> how you know everyone's house is decorated with those blue glass floats and you know uh fishing nets and i thought okay get it i get it you know <laughs> bring it on so you know i'm more patient with other people's desires for kind of what they uh, want if they want comfort or, or whatnot out of life so mm -hmm. yeah you call the neighborhood your bet noir that's the name of the piece so and you alluded to this right at the start of when you were talking about whether the place makes the person or the person makes the place you choose to stay even though it's difficult because you want it to be difficult. Mm -hmm. um, do you still feel that way about your place now? I do, you know, and I should be clear too that I live in um, two places. I mean, I live in Topanga Canyon recently uh, in Los Angeles and also have this desert place. So I, um, I, yeah, I find that I, I wanted the difficulty to um, – that I wanted that clarity, I think, you know, of what it would uh, – of what it kind of brings to me and appreciated the forced focus. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? I think maybe you could re – Sure. I'm just curious I about the the – intent behind calling it the bet noir yes 
Yeah, I mean, that's what I was, you know, it is not convenient to want, um, <laughs> to want any of this, really, that I actually can see what good writing uh, colleagues have gotten done when they take, say, professorships at towns that may not be their first love, and that um, they learn a lot from that. For one, their focus is on their teaching. Secondly, they learn to dig into a place uh, in a way that I find really, really rewarding and uh, exemplary, that it may not be their favorite place, but they haven't been indulgent of that in themselves. And they go and they take the work and, and they find it and make a great life for themselves and improve creative departments everywhere. Uh, and then they get good writing done at night because they're not out just salivating over the land like I am. So, um, but I really, I have found it inconvenient all my life in that I've wanted to pursue what I want. And so the places absolutely embody that, that I choose to live. And it is a bet noir to fight something that I know I love and that I know isn't necessarily good for me um, to, to have that desire, you know, to be there is not, and good for me, I suppose, for a writer is what makes me write, what gives me that time. And certainly finding a difficult place to go live is not the answer to that. You know? <laughs> really so um, finding a place where I imagine kind of a room of one's own and yet, you know, it may be 110 degrees or it may be 50 and, uh, you know, there's uh, or it may have been, you know, uh, half dismantled by vandals while you're gone and this kind of thing is not convenient, but I absolutely love that. And I found, you know, when I did start writing in essay and doing this personal writing, I was living newly in Utah on a kind of gentleman's ranch, but on a little ranch in the Rocky mountains, that was, you had to break the ice off the trough to feed the horses in the morning, you know? Um, and it was hard to get into town on, on some days. So I thrived on that and it really, um, uh, was exciting to me. And so I got writing done around that, um, inconvenience and I, and I, I like that. I like to feel busy. I like my brain to be busy as well as my body. And so it kind of fulfills that for me. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that it is a way to, as you just mentioned, you like your body to be busy. And if you're doing physical things, it's a way to let your mind think and sort of meditate and process and ponder so that when you sit down to write, you, you're ready, you have material. Yeah, it is living for the material, you know, and in a way that I said that going back to fiction was recursive, certainly going out to difficult places and then being back in Los Angeles taught me how to approach living in Los Angeles among lots of people more productively as well. Um, but yeah, wanting my, you know, I, I'm an overthinker. That's why I became a writer, you know, right. so keeping my body busy and paying attention to my surroundings is a way of occupying me uh, head to toe, occupying myself. And it it's as if I, I – gosh, this will sound silly, but there is kind of this aspect of it at which I allow myself to process without having to think about it too hard as the overthinker that I would tend to be. And out then at the end of that process comes the thoughts a little more digested – and with uh, more clarity than they would mm -hmm. if I just sat down. 
at my desk and tried to write well. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, that's just nearly impossible, yes. right? It has to come from the heart because I get, I, I get in my way so fast, you know, to try and make sentences sound great or cool, or there's an exercise I do with students where I tell them, what, what is it you're trying to sound like in your writing? I try and make it obvious to themselves if they're trying to sound smart or funny or cool. And I even mean the kind of subversive cool that we often put forth by sounding bad. So really getting that out and getting to the heart of what you really, really need to say and getting myself engaged in ways that matter with a community or area lets me get to that more quickly. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I love that. So what are you working on now? Uh, well, I've got a lot in the air. I'm, um, working on an adaptation of an essay into a screenplay. That's one project. A pilot uh, is another project. Um, And then I have kind of two other things I'm juggling, which are these ongoing chapters of a book, um, a nonfiction kind of researched narrative on the intersection really of growing up and processing of experience with uh, this kind of uh, animal knowledge and this, this animal human overlap that happens in places like uh, the Morongo Basin um, and looking at that as a way of processing experience. So it sounds a little heady. I mean it to be in, in on the page uh, much more um, kind of flat-footed and anecdotal, um, which is not to say cutesy, um, but informed by research, but really personal essays put together. And I'm also growing this um, Mojave Desert Arts, a small residency center in uh, the Mojave Desert out of the Wonder Valley area that is uh, very exciting. And we're working on an old homesteader's cabin out there. And we're going to hold workshops and uh, overnights and do residencies for writers to be able to come in and stay and embrace that themselves. So, and then maybe do a reading or workshop for people in the area. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I love the sound of that. Yeah. Well, come on down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You'll definitely have to keep me posted on the status of that when you're ready to start accepting residents so that I can help promote it. That sounds great. Absolutely. I know that I have always looked at, I I looked up residencies as I was shaping this and saw one, there are some really, really posh ones, which is so cool for writers to be able to go do and some really cool accessible ones or places maybe in Vermont, they wouldn't naturally go. But I saw one in Alaska that said off grid cabin was kind of had, it was almost like old West writing at the top. Like if you dare come to (laughs) Alaska. And I thought, well, I can hit a sweet spot somewhere in there um, and uh, be able to, you know, it's a really thriving community out there. And, um, with Joshua Tree and Palm Springs nearby and then the crazy arts community that's starting out um, in Wonder Valley and just uh, um, landscape art and a lot of interdisciplinary stuff by nature. But boy, they love writers and they just appreciate the work that's going on out there. So won't it be fun to bring a bunch of uh, colleagues and and people kind of out of the blue out to see all that? I think that'll be great. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. I love it. You, I mean, here I am, somebody who's been working on facilitating community for writers now for almost my whole career. So I'm all on board with those type of projects. <laughs> oh, that's great. Isn't it funny? I mean, we might try, you know, we go through all sorts of writing that says all sorts of things, um, complicated ways and the gymnastics of that. And really, ultimately, it's that Ian Forrester thing, right? Only connect. Right. We do this because we may want to sit at our homes and do it, and then we crave the other people. So, right. <laughs> yes, we connect. It's true. Well, and as writers, the only way to have an impact with our work is if we have an audience and if we're connecting with the, with readers. Absolutely. That's so. absolutely it. And is and it is really fun to get people to move past um, the rant. Or in it, however heartfelt it may be, and see what happens to the piece and the ways it enlarges itself into becoming universal when they've reached an audience. Yeah. When they make that communication, it's yeah. just magic. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing, Liz. I have so enjoyed talking with you today. You too. Thank you. What a pleasure. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work online? Okay. Well, I. I maintain a couple of websites, uh, and like many people, they're, they are a little intermittent, but I do have the daysargods.com and mojavedesertarts.com, and I could be emailed through either of those, and I have those. But I also teach with UCLA and privately and can be reached. I don't know. You tell me if you do this. I'm not as active on Facebook as I could be because it feels like a barrage, but I love staying there for my other fellow writers and seeing what they're doing. So I am on Facebook, but I'm on Instagram because it's less wordy. And that's doc, yeah, doc, D O C underscore Stevens, S T E P H E N S. And actually, people reach me quite a lot through that, through the Mm -hmm. messaging. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to send on information for all sorts of programs and stuff we're doing. So. Excellent. Well, I will make sure to include all those links in the show notes for this episode when it goes live. Okay, great. Thank you. What fun. Thank you. Good questions. That was Liz Stevens. Visit her online at thedaysaregods.com or mojavedesertarts.org. Follow her on Instagram at doc underscore Stevens. Find the links and info from this episode in the show notes online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Of course, please don't forget to check out my online course, CNF 101. It's a six-week email course, and that means when you sign up, you get a lesson emailed to you with the audio once a week for six weeks. It's an audio course, so those emails include the audio recording of the lesson, which you can download and listen to as many times as you want, reading material, summary of the lesson, as well as homework for the week. And it's a great way to just learn more about the genre of creative nonfiction. You'll learn more about the literary landscape, how this world talks about the genre, different forms of the genre, reading and writing in each of the subgenres. You'll have continued access to a Facebook group with other course participants. And of course, you'll have access to the material to use and revisit at your leisure as frequently as often as you would like. Check it out online. I would love nothing more than to support your writing journey telling true stories. That website link is janamarlise.com slash cnf101course. 
Next time on More to the Story, I talk with Rebecca Tausig about her experience with life in a wheelchair and about disability in literature. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash more to the story. And while you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you. And it helps with the ratings. More to the Story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California, with technical and audio support from TJ Santoro. Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com, follow Under the Gumtree on Twitter and Instagram at UnderGumtree. I'm Jana Marlise Marin, just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story, tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. on the balcony drinking up our wine talking about the way that we used to live our lives the words in the books man they're nothing but lies i look into your eyes and you look into mine you say tell me a story tell me true The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll, I'll tell my